every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning and welcome to the final day of the month, Wednesday the 31st of May. This is Peter Lewis with Hong Kong's top-rated business show, The Original Money Talk, except no imitations. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk in your favourite podcast app. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, concerns are mounting over whether US lawmakers will be able to pass the debt ceiling bill ahead of the looming June the 5th deadline, with Republican opposition to the bill mounting. A group of Republicans, led by Pennsylvania Congressman Scott Perry, said on Tuesday they would do everything in their power to block the deal. The compromise bill to raise the debt ceiling faces its first major test in the 13-member House Rules Committee later today. Two of the panel's nine Republicans have signalled they will oppose bringing it to the House floor for a vote. China called for stable and constructive ties with the US in a meeting with Elon Musk Tuesday. Mr Musk arrived in Beijing for his first visit since the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic and met with Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang. Mr Qin said China will continue to promote a high level of opening up to the outside world. Some experts expressed concern Tuesday about the rise of artificial intelligence. A group of scientists warned that the new technology was so powerful that mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority, alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. The warning came in a one-sentence statement published by the Center for AI Safety, which is a San Francisco-based non-profit organization. More than 350 AI executives, researchers and engineers signed the statement. On today's program, I'm joined by our regular Wednesday commentator, Enzio von Feil, who is also a capital preservation specialist for individuals. Also with us is Hao Hong, chief economist at Grow Investment Group, along with David Roche, president and global strategist at Independent Strategy. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks faltered Tuesday in a choppy session with strength in the technology sector, offsetting losses elsewhere on uncertainty about whether lawmakers would pass the debt ceiling bill ahead of the looming June the 5th deadline. The S&P 500, which ended last week at a nine-month high, was flat on Tuesday at 4,206. The Dow lost 51 points, or 0.2%, to end at 33,043. The Nasdaq Composite Index is off to its best start to a year in more than 30 years. It added a third of a percent to finish at 13,017, pairing gains after trading up as much as 1.4% earlier in the day. The Nasdaq was boosted by a surge in AI stocks. The gains were led by shares in computer chip designer NVIDIA, which closed 3% higher after jumping 24% last week. And that takes its gain so far in 2023 to more than 180%. At one stage in the session, the company's valuation exceeded the trillion dollar mark, making it the first $1 trillion chip company. 
joining an elite group of U.S. stocks that includes Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google's parent Alphabet. Some profit-taking later in the day left NVIDIA with a market capitalization of $992 billion. The surge in NVIDIA's market value has come after the company projected its sales would rise to $11 billion US dollars in the three months ending in July, exceeding Wall Street's previous forecast by more than 50%, aided by a surge in, surge in demand for AI chips. Morgan Stanley described NVIDIA's outlook upgrade last week as the largest dollar revenue upside in industry history, and they added, we simply have no historical precedent for the magnitude of this step function. By contrast, Hong Kong stocks hit a new 2023 low in yesterday morning's session. The Hang Seng Index fell 1% at the low of the day, before rebounding to close 45 points or 0.2% higher at 18,596. That's close, though, to a six-month low. And the Hang Seng is down 18% from its January peak. The pain is set to continue for Hong Kong stocks this morning. Futures markets are indicating a decline of around 230 points. That's 1.3% at the open. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index snapped four days of losses, rallying half a percent after slipping into a bear market earlier in the day, defined as a fall of 20% from its recent peak. Mainland markets were also higher in choppy trading. The CSI 300 index of the largest listed stocks in Shanghai and Shenzhen rose 0.1%, having erased all of its 2023 gains last week, and it's heading for a fourth straight losing month. The benchmark has tumbled almost 9% from its peak at the end of January, wiping out one trillion US dollars in value from domestic A shares. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our Wednesday morning guests. We have with us our regular commentator, Enzio Ronfowl, who is a capital preservation specialist for individuals. Good morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Hao Hong, who is chief economist at Grow Investment Group. Morning to you, Hao. Good morning, Peter. And welcome back to David Roche, president and global strategist at Independent Strategy. Nice to see you and hear you again, David. Hello, everybody. It's nice to be back. Let's start with the economic data that we've got coming out from China later this morning. China's going to release official purchasing managers index data, followed tomorrow by the private sector Kaishin Manufacturing PMI. The contraction in the manufacturing sector is expected to moderate slightly, according to a poll of economists, while the rate of expansion in the stronger services sector is expected uh, to slow. Enzio, let me get your thoughts first of all. What should we be looking out for from these numbers this morning and what are you expecting well i don't really do the the sort of month month forecasting i I, as a general point i don't i think that when markets in january were very bullient about this recovery we were a little bit conservative and warned that it was not going to all be tickety-boo at the same time we don't (laughs) think that china is dead i think that the, the, the key issue that we have in China, just to sort of cut to the chase, is actually the zoological outlook of the three rhinos being the demographic time bomb, the mountains of death and the decoupling. And these things aren't going away, and if they don't go away, it could become a mini-Japan. The, the key to this really is that China needs to get 
going again. It does, after all, account for 50% of tax revenue, 60% of GDP, and 80% of and allow private sector to flourish yet again, as they did in previous regimes. I think it's going to be a very slow upward trajectory. And these three Chinese rhinos, these are things that basically are, are, are the big risks, aren't they, on the, uh, on the horizon that uh, policymakers need to be looking out for? Quite. The, um, the, the debt situation is not just a federal debt in, in American terms, but also the, that of the local governments, as we all know. The demographic time really here list knows about that, and then the decoupling we all know about. These are all threats to the Chinese economy. As long as they go with the flow, the old Americanism, if you don't like change, you would like irrelevance even less. Well, the Chinese are actually pretty pragmatic people, so I'm, I've got every hope that they will go back to the markets and, mm. and allow the, the, the practice of fish, but I th- that'd be the sine qua non. How investors seem to be quite um, disappointed with the economic recovery at the moment in, in the mainland. Why is China's recovery stuttering? Um. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the um, reasons uh, run deeper than that. Um, I think, you know, in the past three years, uh, what you're seeing is that um, the uh, Chinese exports has been particularly strong, and export is the sector that is holding up the economy, and export is the sector that is satisfying uh, foreign demand. Uh, so I think, you know, in, in a way, when you see record trade surplus and also uh, uh, record deposits in the Chinese banking system is a single it's symbolizing that you know China is sucking uh, industrial growth out of the Western countries. Right? So, but then at the same time, you know, because of the uh, lockdown and pandemic control, uh, consumption becomes very weak. And now, you know, going uh, five, six months after reopening, uh, we're still seeing uh, use unemployment at you know twenty, I said more than twenty percent at all time high, uh, and also people's incomes are not growing as much. Right? So, even though we have a very strong uh, first quarter rebound, and I think second quarter, you know, we should expect some reasonable uh, uh, year-on-year growth as well because of very low base last year. Uh, you know, the fact is that you know export sector is slowing because of the foreign demand is being tempered by the Fed, and also the Chinese consumption is still struggling because of income and unemployment. Right, so I think that is the situation right now we're facing, and I think that is why um, the recovers recovery seems to be sputtering after three, four months of, uh, of uh, going into this year. So presumably export growth on its own, while obviously we're pleased to see that, that's not going to be enough to, to hold up the Chinese economy? Um, yeah, that is because the foreign demand is subsiding as well. You know, because if you, you, get, you see the inflation pressure in the U.S. economy, uh, that is subsiding. So that, that's meaning that um, the U.S. demand uh, is weakening because of the Fed tightening. Okay. David, are you disappointed with the performance of the economy? Do you think it should have been doing better? Uh, no. Uh, I think China's coming down to a growth rate which reflects uh, the structural nature of the rhinoceros. In other words, um, clearly the uh, leverage problem has not been resolved, but actually hasn't been resolved in housing but the most immediate one is local government finances, where probably um, around between 20 and 60% of these uh, entities do not cover their interest payments. 
but they do account for 8% of bank lending. Mm. So you've got that. Uh, you've got the fact that the consumer no longer has confidence, really. It's certainly not rushing out to spend um, the excess savings that it built up pretty well without government help, by the way, in contrast to the US or Europe during the pandemic. So you don't have the consumer going wild about opening up either. They're being very cautious. The young people are doing badly uh, and they're going to go on, I think, saving a large proportion of their income for rainier days. Uh, so in my view, um, the most important thing, however, uh, was what I was saying, and that is the structural nature, nature of the change of international trade. Uh, China can't use export demand anymore, really, to boost its economy because the world is split into um, uh, alliances, which China, Russia are one, Western democracy, oh, all democracies nearly, except for this uh, so-called global south, or on the other, and they're not going to trade with each other like uh, in the days of globalization. That's over. So is is the priority for the consumer then now, rather than spending, to, to build up savings even more or, or use those savings maybe to pay off um, existing debt? Well, look, um, if you look at the, the pattern of what happens in uh, economies when they open up, you get this bounce everywhere. And then eventually you settle down to what the economy is actually capable of supporting. Mm. Now, the difference between China and the Western world was that this, the fiscal spending, the fixer, fiscal transfers were actually towards corporates and much less towards the individual. So the excess savings phenomenon in China was always much less of a buffer to be spent when people felt better than in the United States or in Europe. Uh, so essentially... You're, you, you have a different consumer behavior, which is, do we feel good enough about things in order to go out and spend money? There are excess savings, but they certainly weren't boosted much by the government. And the answer is, that, I mean, I think it was how mentioned youth unemployment. I mean, with that at 20 percent, you know, these young consumers are not going to go, uh, not going to go wild. So you don't have the same even domestic demand support. Uh, which you had in, uh, in, in the Western economies and even Japan, as you can see, uh, as they came out of COVID. Enzio, mm. you also mentioned the debt as well, the national and local uh, debt level. We heard this story earlier in the week about Wuhan in the, in the centre of China naming and shaming debtors uh, in the local newspaper, which tends to suggest that this is becoming quite a big problem for some of the local sort of municipalities. I think again, just broadly speaking, that they've kind of that they've, as, as David was saying, they've overextended themselves. I just wanted to add one point to, to the trade discussion that we've had. Let's also not forget that the what I've in my book on trade myths called the host country protectionism. In other words, the Chinese government also, quite understandably, beginning to possibly turn on the foreign entities working in China itself, and they must again account for quite a bit of technological progress, R&D, employment, and all that. So if, if they also turn on the foreign multinationals in China, then I think the, the, the slowdown is going to become exacerbated. So I think if you've got that double sort of whammy there of the, of the 
local government debt rising ever more and really just I think just coming to light now it's been going on for years and years as we all know but yeah. then also this turning on the on the foreign subsidiaries mm. how I think that's a very good point yeah very good point can indeed. I just add that you know the Wuhan government is just trying to you know put the blame on the uh uh, companies, especially the SOEs, that is not, you know, repaying them back. Obviously, there's a, a delay in the cash cycle and also, you know, some sort of cash flow problem. But I think the Wuhan government make it public, you know, just to make sure that, you know, he's not taking the blame, mm-hmm. you know, of what the others, you know, paying paying back the due late. Uh, so I think there's a, uh, is, is a sort of a caveat there. Uh, and also, yes. you know, the, the local government problem, uh, you know, has been around for, for, for some time now. You know, I think the outstanding local, uh, municipal local government debt uh, is about 70 trillion yuan right now. I think, you know, many of the, uh, many of the local government, for example, Wuhan gov- uh, local government, uh, is, uh, the debt load is like 500% of the, uh, government, uh, revenue intake, right? So it's, it's particularly acute, right? So that's the, uh, Probably one of the heaviest indebted uh, local government in, mm. uh, in China right now. I think, I think going forward, you know, because of, of the um, central government's debt is still very low, right? So I think the central government's uh, leverage ratio is about 30% or less than that. And so in that case, you know, the central government can somehow do a desk work, for example, you know, take on the local government debt and use the uh, central government's uh, credit rating uh, to lower the borrowing costs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it, it, you know it, it is a mess, but then at the same time, it's not unsolvable. The problem is not unsolvable. Where has all the I um... see a consolidated government debt in China is much higher. Um, I mean, according to the figures put out by the IMF and uh, JP Morgan and other people who have. Uh, sufficient number of economists to study this, presumably with some degree of a- a- accuracy, at figures which are closer, uh, in, on a consolidated basis, uh, which are closer to 80 to 100 percent. And I think the fiscal constraints do uh, do arise in the case of trying to fudge uh, without, you know, real debt write-downs, uh, LG, uh, local government financing debt. I think it's it's very difficult to make it kind of go away in another three-card, uh, three-symbol trick, uh, you know, where it disappears into a, an asset management company. Uh, I, that is precisely why I think that the problem of the malfeasance of loans and assets in China is now coming home to roost in terms of a reduction in the f- outgoing secular rate of potential growth. So I just want to add one thing to the to the fiscal side from a completely different angle, which is that many people say, well, they can, and we're not saying this this morning, but just the public at large, many people, well, they can just inject some fiscal stimulus yet again. Now, the um, first of all, we've got the, the debt problems, but also I just don't think that the marginal utility of X of building even more roads and bridges is really going to cut at this time. I think they probably have enough of these things running around, at least in the urban side of the equation. And I just question whether fiscal stimuli themselves, which is what they want to do a little bit, um, funding of infrastructure projects yet again to get the economy going this July, August. I just don't think that's going to happen. Can I ask the three of you, where has all the credit injections gone? We've had record money supply. We've had big credit injections. I think in the month of March, uh, total total social financing was the, the highest for a March month on on record. How, why, how, where has that gone? Why has it not helped the economy? 
Hang on, hang on. Let me let, let me bring Howe in first. In the relationship between credit and the economy, this happens very frequently. If you remember uh, the famous phrase, I think of Milton Friedman, you can't push on a string, and monetary policy is a string. So what happens is you that credit is created, but it doesn't result in output, and then you see that the credit creation. Uh, and the stock of credit in relation to output is rising, which means the marginal productivity of capital is falling. And that's exactly what is happening. Mm. And I would add that the uh, budget deficit in China, uh, again, on a consolidated basis, is, is north of 13% of GDP, which is a point at which you really have to think twice before you add more to it. How much your assessment? That, well, yeah, yeah, can, you know, it, it's very easy to explain. Well, firstly, you know, you're seeing record uh, lending because the the size of the economy is substantially bigger than than before, right? So you, you're talking about 120 uh, trillion yuan uh, worth of the GDP. Uh, therefore, you know, naturally, your your loan size, your credit size, has to be bigger than before. You know, if you want to sustain, you know, five percent growth. And at the same time, you know, what you're seeing is that, you know, lending growth is substantially less than M2 growth. So M2 is growing at 13%, and lending is, is growing at about 10, 11%. So what that means is that, you know, some of the money uh, um, is being lent out and then redeposited back to the system, right? The reason why that is the case is because you can have a, a, a higher uh, reinvestment rate on your cash uh, uh, than the, uh, the borrowing cost. So, you know, companies, especially, you know, the, the SOEs with means who can borrow at a very cheap cost from the banks, they borrow money from the banks and then, you know, put it into the money market, right, so that you can earn a spread. So that's very easy money, risk-free to earn. Uh, so, you know, even if you don't have investment opportunity, you're incentivized to do that, you know, because, you, you, you know, you can either, uh, earn a risk-free return. Uh, so that is the reason why, you know, even though we're seeing record lending at the same time, we're seeing record deposits growth as well, you know, because, you know, the money is just going back to the system to be, to be reinvested. What would you like to see, NZO, to put the recovery back on track? If, uh, if, if the economy is disappointing um, and it's relying, maybe over-relying on the manufacturing sector, on exports, what specific measures would you like to see? Specifically, three, liberalization, more liberalization of the private sector. The impression that I get in the Western press, I'll confess I don't read Chinese or speak any of the Chinese languages, but the impression one gets is that the, the, um, the private sector has been relegated to being a poor cousin, something to be shoved around at will by local and national government officials, and I don't think that if they, if the gov if the private sectors, as I suggested before, actually accounts for 80 of urban employment, then I think that they really have to liberalise and allow that private sector to get going again. Indeed, as Deng Xiaoping did, that was the whole magic of what he did. Mm. Um, until that happens, I'm afraid these three rhinos, the zoological dystopian outlook, is going to worsen. David, what would you like to see? Well, I think, uh, of course, what I'd like to see, what I think I'm going to see are two different things. Uh, first of all, I completely agree with what uh, Enzi has already said. You need to uh, take the harness and the blinkers off of the private sector. Well, uh, number one. Number two is I'd like to see um, the Washington consensus, which is... Uh, 
really enunciated by Jake Sullivan and um, by by um, Yellen, yes. which is really a the way which the U.S. is going to and its allies, by the way, are going to deal with China, which is you will get nothing on technology which can be put to a dual use in defense or directly into defense without dual use. We'll trade with you provided you're obeying our concepts of the free market and we'll join with you if you're combating a global threat like climate change or, or uh, epidemics. I'd like to see that um, reversed because both sides agree to play by the same rule book. I think if you, and thirdly, I think there's only one way to write down uh, a bad debts uh, problem, a legacy problem in society, and that's to write down the assets and it's to write down yes. the loans and clean the shop. That's the only way you can get the system to function properly. Uh, I mm -hmm. think the current regime in China, the current administration in China, uh, will put the political um, aims uh, of rising China ahead of achieving any of those uh, particular goals. So I don't expect my dream list uh, to come true. Okay, thank you. How, what, what would you like to see to put the economy back on track? Uh, well, it's very easy. Just um, uh, do a consumption coupon, you know. Like <laughs> yeah, it's very, very easy. So they should speak it's to Paul Chan. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big round of uh, national wealth transfer, you know, from the central government to households. Uh, just now, uh, you know, one of the guests mentioned that uh, the households are, you know, are somehow undercompensated for the labor. Uh, and also the household sector, you know, as a percentage of total economy is very, very low. Uh, in fact, you know, the household sector in China as a, uh, as a percentage of the economy is the lowest, uh, in the world, right? You know, comparing to, you know, uh, yes. uh, the other countries, right? So then that way, you know, it's the key reason why the households can't spend, you know, because they just don't have enough means and, and income. And then right now the situation is being exacerbated, you know, by uh, economic difficulties and also, you know, the prior pandemic. So right now, what, what you can do as a as a central government is that you know you 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 you, you distribute a consumption coupon, but then at the same time, you know um, the uh, the central bank can print money and and buy the uh, the new debt that is being uh, issued yeah. by the treasuries. Then that way, you know, I think China is is in a, a perfect uh, position to do this, you know, because inflation in in China is like almost zero, right? So you don't mm. have an inflation mm -hmm. uh, boundary like the Western countries do. And I think, you know, the consumption coupon idea worked ex exceedingly well uh, in the past uh, three years during the pandemic in the, in the developed countries. And I think we can do the same in China. Do you agree, Andrew? Consumption vouchers? I think, I think that that might be a good walk. Um, but again, I get back to my liberalization stuff. Um, and I think also what what both gentlemen have said, the other measures are very useful. I just wanted to warn that either half of this, if they don't do the things that we've suggested of the three of us this morning, it will either become a rhino or a Japan that's been on its back since 1990. In other words, for the last 30 years, only now do we see some wages growth coming through. And that's beginning to, I believe, at least help the Japanese economy get back on its feet. So I think those are the challenges that China has to really face head on. Um, and I just hope that pragmatism will prevail. 
Well, let me turn uh, our attention to the markets. Um, How I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that May has been an absolutely miserable month for for Chinese stocks, both for the the Hang Seng and the the mainland China markets. They're at their lowest levels of the year, uh, virtually. The Hang Seng China Enterprises Index slipped into a bear market for a while yesterday. The Hang Seng is not far off of it. It's uh, down about 18% from its um, its high. Um, How, first of all, what's gone wrong? Mm, yeah, well, I think you know, people, well, um, Peter, last time when we talked, you know, we mentioned about, you know, how the uh, Hang Seng Index is running into resistance and I don't see any, uh, uh further upside from, uh, from uh, 23,000 uh, level and now we're at 18,000, right? So, uh, it's a, uh, a market correction that is still ongoing and uh, unless we, we see some, uh, stimulus or, or some sort of, uh, policy actions, you know, from the top. Uh, it will be very difficult to move because, you know, economic data uh, will continue to somehow meeting expectation or disappoint. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the, uh, the other factors that can move the market is not improving either. Right? So I think, you know, one, uh, one, you know, one thing the government can do is, you know, to, to provide uh, or to rebuild the confident, confidence uh, through the uh, stimulus program. But I think, you know, nobody, you know, a large-scale stimulus takes time to discuss. And also, you know, you have to influence the public opinion as well. And seasonality-wise, May and June, you know, has been particularly bad months for, for the Hang Seng, right? So, so that is the reason why, you know, I think people just given up and probably, you know, taking some time off for the summer. Mm. Foreigners in particular seem to have given up, don't they? They, they seem to have bailed out of the market. Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, just go out and go, go fishing and come back in, in <laughs> September, maybe. So, I mean, you, you predicted the, the, the rally very well that we saw into the beginning of this year and, and, and called it very close to the top of the rally. Where would you be now, given where the markets are? Uh, do, you think every, do you think the bad news is now fully priced in? And, and would you be, what, would you be neutral, overweight, underweight on Chinese stocks? What would you do? Mm. Yeah, I think right now, um, because when I when I forecasted the rally uh, back in uh, late October last year, um, I had a twenty three thousand price target on Hang Seng, and, and Hang Seng get to like twenty two thousand eight hundred ish. So you know, it's it's like within a striking distance of of my uh, price target. So right now, I am you know, you know basically being neutral because after after all you know 18,000 is very cheap but then at the same time you know cheap is not the reason to buy because you still need a catalyst you know for the stock to move and right now we're just not seeing you know a, a obvious catalyst right now mm. David, foreigners in particular, they, they seem to be particularly concerned by the geopolitical tensions They've, they're disappointed at the, the lack of stimulus uh, the the economic news just hasn't really been very favourable um, to them. Do do you no, get the impression um, that? Well, look, um, uh, we have no uh, recommended investments in China, and actually, I haven't had since I last spoke to you on this in your former life. So, and that hasn't changed really. Yeah. Markets can go up, and they can ignore uh, structural problems if there's enough liquidity and green driving them. But when you hear the conversation of all of us this morning, it's clear that we're not geniuses outside the range of what the market is worried about. Uh, We mirror it. 
re-articulated. But the market now has got everything we talked about in its focus. And therefore, um, it will not go up until there is, I think, um, either clear resolution of the structural problems, the rhinos, yes. and the international problems. Absolutely. If they don't see that, then because it is in focus, they won't, it won't go up. And I would add just one other thing to that which is, I think it was Encio said that there is concern that the private sector is not um, in the position it once was in China is being pushed around. So if you take uh, common prosperity, the feeling among foreign investors is very much that we don't actually know what our rights are in investing yes. in the private sector in China. It can, they can change rapidly. We can wake up in the morning and our long-term dividend discount cash flow has uh, lost about uh, 50 years. Hmm. So that the company is worth much, much less than what we thought we could see with some um, clarity uh, yesterday. And I think that question mark over how the private sector fits into the restructuring of China, the reforms we've talked about, and indeed even uh, the current market uh, Outlook. I think that is a major concern for foreigners. Yes. Enzio, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, again, I don't, maybe it's because of my, my Von Hayek training, but I just think that it's it's, it's this private sector, the, the consumption voucher will be a great one-off idea, but we see with dear old Paul Chan here that he keeps on having to inject ever more consumption vouchers to get the goat going. So, um, I don't, I don't. I think it is more of a structural issue. And again, I would also warn that if they start beating up on foreign multinationals in China, then they will lose even more on technology. We all know that growth is a function of technology, technological progress, productivity, basically, and um, demographic growth. Um, and so, with demographic growth going down, I think that this this. Um, factor productivity has to rise quite considerably, and that's those are really the challenges that need to be addressed. I, I just think that the um, if you don't have to be injured, there's really no reason even for a, just a, a private investor to really put their money there. I mean, the, the you do have more interesting stories around. I mean, a few of them, obviously, we know that the, what I call the global economic time is not great. Guess what? The Fed rates will probably keep on rising for a while, still, in my humble opinion, up to about 6%. That's not going to do markets any good anyway, but um, there are still pockets of, of growth and, and fabulous companies in very capitalist America, for instance, that are doing just well. We just listened to Warren Buffett, what he's doing. Mm -hmm. How I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that enhancing shareholder value is not a priority for the Chinese government and certainly not returning profits to investors either through, through dividends is, is, a, is a priority. And you've got other markets in the region where that is, like, like Japan. How, how big a problem is that? Um, I'm not entirely sure Like, what is the... Uh uh, uh, sort of enhancing shareholders' value. I mean, because after all, you know, uh, a healthy and growing stock market is still 
using the benefit of China, right? So, you know, firstly, you still need yes. to finance the growth. And secondly, I think, you know, a buoyant uh, uh, stock market actually instill uh, confidence in, in, the, in the population, right? So I think it's actually quite important, you know, to have a healthy, growing uh, stock market. And so I think, you know, right now, um, so far this year, you know, one theme or, or the few themes, investment themes has been doing particularly well uh, in the domestic uh, Asia market, you know, which is the AI, uh, the AI sectors, uh, semiconductor sectors, and also the, um, uh, and also the SOE sectors. Uh, you know, these stocks have been flying, really. Uh, so I think right now, you know, the problem is that, you know, because the economy is slowing and people are not sure what to do just yet, especially they're not sure what kind of policy is going to get, you know, from the central government. Uh, and people were just, yes. just adopting a, a wait and see approach. All right. So I think, you know, right now, because the market has slowed down so, so fast, you know, almost 20% now. Um, um, and, and maybe there's a little bit uh, further downside to go, but then it is not the sort of a time to, to be overly pessimistic. Do you think that euphoria in the AI sector will continue? I mean, we know pretty well overseas, certainly what stocks to, to look at. It's the NVIDIAs, the Taiwan semiconductors, and, and they've, um, particularly the NVIDIAs, they've just gone through the moon. Is, is this a phase or is this something real here? Is there a real transformation going on now in the technology sector that, that AI is going to um, spur and, and, and that's going to really drive these stocks further? I think many people would refuse to believe that um, the AI could go much further from here. You know, I think uh, you know for in in the in the near term, it, it's poised for a pause. You know, because Nvidia, you know, the leading stock in the AI sector, has been going tremendously well. Uh, uh, so I think you know it's bound to run into resistance you know, because you know it's trading at about twenty five times uh, price to sell. Right? So I think Nvidia is a, a a a signpost for the domestic AI stocks as well. So if Nvidia take a pause, then you know I think the domestic sectors could take a pause as well. But I think in the long term, though, uh, AI is definitely one of the growth engine, right? So I think uh, uh, Tony Ma of Tencent and also um, um, uh, Jensen Wong uh, of Nvidia, they all say that AI is uh, uh, similar to a new growth in a computer uh, computing industry, right? So I think you know for the longer term, for secular growth, you still have the position in this sector. David, we've got about two minutes left. Are, are you convinced by this uh, euphoria that we're yeah, seeing in AI? By the technological change and by um, my view, which is that uh, uh, large language models, instead of putting everybody out of work, will make relatively mediocre people more clever by giving them tools that they could never have mastered otherwise, like programming, answering uh, questions, writing essays and so on. So I think... You then move on to quantum computing, uh, which is the way that AI will really work when it works. And that's all fine. I think the stock market is a bubble, but I don't think what's happening in, um, uh, what's happening in the actual technology is a bubble. Uh, I think that is, um, is, you know, it's going to be a lift off process, but it's very exciting. But would I plunge into the AI stocks now? Certainly not. 
Well, thank you all very much for your thoughts this morning. Great to hear you. You heard there David Roche, who is President and Global Strategist at Independent Strategy, Hao Hong, who is Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group, and our regular Wednesday commentator, Enzio von Fahl, who is a Capital Preservation Specialist for Individuals. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO. CEO of Econos' advisory and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Have a great day. Money Talk.